A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hey, it's me again, Cindy Adams, columnist from the New York Post who appreciates a colleague. New York Magazine is a Bible for who we live in the city, state, place, which just happens to be the capital of the whole world. And at its top, the Statue of Liberty for Our Town's magazine is its good-looking editor-in-chief, David Haskell. First, history, David, when did the magazine start? Hi, Cindy. The magazine started in 1968, and uh, it started in this like really small startup, hot box little room of uh, you know maybe 18 people, and uh, and then has just kept growing and growing from there. 18 people. How many people you got now? 207. <laughs> And it's not a little hot box and a closet? No, but I keep trying to, to remember that energy. Like, yes, 207 is a, is a lot of people, and we work on making a print magazine, and we make a big website, and the website has all the different things that happen, and we have podcasts and all that stuff. But I'm still trying to make it feel like a artist commune, like a little project that we're all really intensely involved in, because it's, it's a kind of it's a special and more bespoke project than a lot of other media, a lot of other magazines. Okay, so who are you? Where did you come from? How did this happen to you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I uh, grew up half in New York and half in Connecticut, and I um, came to journalism a little bit late in my life. Uh, I was thinking I wanted to be a work in urban politics, New York City politics, New York City urban planning, New York City uh, yeah, architecture. Right, yeah, okay. And at some point, I um, got hooked on magazines. And I went in for graduate school. I, I moved to Cambridge University, and I started a small magazine there with a few friends from that grad program. And we didn't really know what we were doing, and, and none of us had been magazine makers before. Really, I, in retrospect, we were making just kind of a journal with chapters, and we hadn't really realized what you can do with the form of a magazine. But I loved it, and I, you know, long story short, I grew up in New York until I was 10, and then my parents moved me to Connecticut, and I always missed the city. And we would come in on the weekends, see shows, I had piano lessons that I Oh, you lived a very high-class life. Yeah, I lived a really nice life, I did. I had had parents who were hippies and then yuppies, and... um, Then richies? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And... um, when I when I graduated from college, I sort of imagined I'd be moving to New York, but I instead went to a graduate program in Cambridge in England. And it was there that I started a magazine, even though I didn't think I was going to be doing that. And it was there that I sort of realized how much I missed the city. And, and that's I came back to run the magazine that I had started. But what would you know about doing a magazine in London? Well, it's not. No, nothing, really. <laughs> We had this thought, this was a bunch of grad students, um, we, we all just wanted to make a place where we could be publishing um, stories about the way life works that were curated in an interesting way. And when I say that, that sounds so vague, just like hopelessly could be anything. 
And what we learned is we it was called Topic Magazine, and each issue was a different topic, and one would be about war. And you war. sold thirty copies, right? Yeah, yeah, we sold like three thousand <laughs> copies. But they, but the, each copy paid, each issue paid for the printing of the next issue, and we were all volunteers, and we were working on it. And together over years, I think we taught ourselves the the sort of skill of making a magazine. Okay, so how do we jump from there? where you're doing some sort of a cockamamie magazine in England. How do we get from there to the Bible, to New York Magazine, and you becoming the editor? You're 11 years old. How did you get to be the editor of New York Magazine? Uh, Well, there's not that many plot points. You know, in 2003, (laughs) I decided to move to New York with that magazine, with Topping Magazine. I thought if that has a chance of of long-term success... It should be edited in New York City. And, and when I was here, I was uh, with it. I was waiting tables and doing a lot of other uh, freelance work as I, uh, you know, built this crew of volunteer editors and, and edited that magazine. One of the things I did while I was here is meet editors further along in their career and showed them this magazine and said, what do you think? Could you give me some advice? And one of the people I met... His name was Adam Moss, and at the time, he was the editor-in-chief of the yeah, Times Magazine, yeah, yeah, but yeah, then yeah. he later moved to New York Magazine, and he's the one who saw an opportunity for me to come into that magazine, to New York, and that was 2007, late 2007, and right before the economy was about to crash, and he took a risk on me in a way that I don't think he would have been able to just months later, so I kind of slipped in there as an editor with some experience, but not really the obvious experience. I never worked at a proper magazine, just been trying to run my own thing. And then I just stayed there for a long time. And, you know, 12 or so years later, I became the editor-in-chief. How does the magazine, New York Magazine, dredge up its ideas? There's so much going on in New York, and it's so changeable. How do you schlep out an idea? That, that thing, the idea machine, is the most important uh, project. Because, so we make a magazine that comes out Bi-weekly. It used to be a weekly magazine, now we come out tw- twice a month, right? But we also run a, a website that publishes something close to 100 pieces a day. So we are a major news engine on the website, and then we are this magazine that we're very proud of publishing twice a month. And they need so many ideas for them to function. And so we have just a ton of meetings scheduled throughout the week where people have to bring ideas to the table. And you have to process a, a lot of mediocre ideas or half-baked ideas or wouldn't that be nice to do but how, how are we going to do them ideas to be able to get to the handful that you think have a shot at starting and then that's just the beginning of the process then you have to find the writer who can make it happen you have to convince the subject to participate you have to work through it all and so we're just constantly pushing ideas from from you know the very beginning germs all the way to the final product. So that means actually you're sitting in a room full of smart asses who all of whom a bit want to show off too. Yeah, and except for this past year when we're doing it over Zoom, but yes. Yeah. Okay. So how many people sit in this? Well, the 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 key meeting of the week is the Tuesday 11 a.m. ideas meeting. And there are usually about 16 people who come to that meeting. And about two-thirds of them are always expected to attend. And then we rotate through a handful of other editors who work at the magazine and writers who work at the magazine um, because we want to make sure that anyone who wants to attend a meeting, that meeting, can come occasionally and see how it works and get their uh, ideas 
directly to me and um, learn the experience of pitching because pitching an idea is uh, pitching a story is different than saying, oh, I have an interesting idea. What you're there in that meeting to do is pitch a story. And that is a point of view about a story that you want to tell. It's not just a subject. And that's the that's the hardest thing in the world. It's like, you know, you could you could talk right now about how it's 93 degrees out and we should do something on air conditioning and climate change. Okay, but what? What is the like story that you want to read? It's- so how do you determine a smart ass from a smart aleck? How do you do that? They all want to get your attention. How do you do that? Well, the way that we structure it now is that you have to send your ideas in ahead of time over email. So then I spend the hour of oh, the meeting I see. I interrogating see. See. you. So you will have pitched me this air conditioning idea and I will just say, but Cindy, do you want to read a profile of an air conditioner guy? <laughs> do you want to read a screed about how air conditioning is terrible for the planet? Do you want to like what is the reading experience you want? And then and then it's like thinking in real time and and an idea if an idea is kind of flat, it's not going to be able to survive that little pitter-patter back and forth conversation. The idea needs to get more interesting as we press on it and not sort of deflate. You told me something on the phone the other day. You told me that you actually did a story about refrigerators and you could tell from the refrigerator, the contents, what sort of a person. I once had an experience with the Gabors a long time ago, Jaja and Jolie and all the rest. And I stayed with Jolie and she gave me a room and it had a refrigerator which only had champagne in it and, and orchids, no food. So how what Fantastic. would you tell from that? Well, that that tells she's you she's a cheapo, yeah. <laughs> or, and she's got style, and she's got a strange circumstance that uh, has led her to that place, and she's able to make decisions that most of the world aren't able to make, and she's a weirdo, you know. Like there's a lot. Like I I love people. I love that this magazine is built around telling the stories of people, but I. One of the things that's really exciting for us is to find the right form to tell you about a person. And I have to say, you were in our pages not that long ago, and it was not a traditional long interview with you, although we've done that before, and it's not necessarily a long written-through piece. What we did is we published beautiful pictures of your extraordinary and quite individual apartment. And uh, that use of an interior design story to me is really interesting. I don't want to publish when we publish interior design images. I'm not really interested in the technique. I'm interested in how rooms tell the story of people and reveal character. And if anyone listening hasn't seen this, I recommend you Google to uh, to find our recent from maybe two years ago uh, uh, article about you. It's it's just. It's fantastic, and the pictures are amazing. Okay, so you can tell from the interior of what what you're photographing what the person is like? Sure. I mean, if I remember correctly, you turned a bathroom in your apartment into your office, and you plastered the walls <laughs> with covers of the New York Post yes. of your scoops and stories. Not just the bathroom, but one, one entire room, 500 front pages that I had, smart ass. So don't knock there, it. I mean, there it's pretty you go. Good. Yeah. There you go. That's okay. pretty great. So do you ever get screwed that something that you've done turns out wrong or or they're mad at you? Did you uh, ever yeah. have an experience? Yeah. I mean, you, we, we, we try to have uh, provocative, independent journalism. And often that means that the people that we write about aren't that happy with what we wrote. <laughs> and yes. so you just, you know, I think that it's really important in a situation like that to get on the phone and hear what they have to say and walk through why we 
made our decisions. Like it's useful to talk it out, but at a certain point you can't, what can you do? You know, I, I am, uh, all the time, just a, just a couple issues ago, we were in a situation where we published a cover story about Rachel Lindsay, who was a participant on the bachelor and then the first bachelorette of color. And she wrote a kind of tell all for us about the, um, experience of, of the bachelor. And she was really proud of the piece and really unhappy with the cover line that we chose. And, you know, that was an interesting situation. What we chose was, oops, I blew up the bachelor. And the picture was so great. It had so much attitude. And the piece that she wrote, as serious as it was, also had so much style to it and so much verve. And I thought a, a headline like that, a cover line would just be like, I really, I love that cover line. I think it's great. The cover looks great. But she didn't like it. And she let the whole world know. And... In that sense, because she was a real collaborator with us and, and um, made the piece with us, I, you know, I feel bad about it. And that's just... You look what, like you what, overcame what, it, honey. What can so, you do, you know? <laughs> how, how much in advance do you plan um, uh, an issue? We're just constantly juggling time periods. I have an issue in my head in December that I know that I want to do, and we're going to spend the next five months making it. And then I don't know what the cover of the next issue is going to be in two weeks. And I'm scrambling. And that's fun because you don't want to have everything programmed out right away. You want to ha be able to take your time and let, let issues bake when they need to in stories. Sometimes you're spending a year cultivating a source, getting somebody to sit down with you. And other times you just got to like, boom, respond to the news, have something important to say and move faster than our competitors. Because a lot of the magazine world is operating at a slower rhythm than we are. So we often have the competitive advantage of just being faster. Do they steal from you? Yeah, yeah. And we steal from each other all the time. Uh, we're in competition over ideas and over people, but also stealing from each other forms and, and, and ways, of, ways of seeing the world. But New York has become, in some ways, I mean, I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm a religious New Yorker. That's my religion. But prices are ridiculous. Crime, garbage, homeless, traffic, construction, politics. It's all impossible. How can you decide what you want to do about New York? You can't pee on everything in New York. Yeah, and I don't think it's our, our role to really be um, outraged. You know, I think that New York is a circus. It is the most extraordinary high pressured, um, like, you know, 50 square miles, if you take the metropolitan area on earth, right? And there's so much drama and tension yeah. and conflict yeah. and posturing and vanity and shame and anger. And all, all of that is like, you know, Tom Wolfe, who was one of the founders of New York Magazine, his whole project was seeing the operatic and, and somewhat amusing, um, you know, larger than life characters in the city and the tension between them all and the power and ambition and struggle. That's what we're covering. So I think, you know, as as devastating and difficult as the pandemic has been for for this city, it has also created a, an experience that none of us will forget for the rest of our lives. We just lived through such an enormous, volatile moment where the city you know, I'm looking out the window right now and it's packed, you know, and like we've gotten through something, but we'll never be the same. And the city really emptied out and is coming back again. And that change will take, uh, you know, years for us to pull apart and dissect. And it'll be really fun, I think.
There are people, when they go to the Hamptons, there's a huge pile of New York Post, and there's a huge pile of your magazine. And if they don't read the New York Post and they don't read your magazine, they have nothing to talk about at a dinner party. That's exactly what they need. I mean, because it's full of dish. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in dish, and I'm interested in... in big stories which is to say big dish you know like i think when we when i the, the the important places that i look to for stories because we're stealing stories all the time are the new york times which i read every morning and the new york post and you get in those two why are we second well <laughs> tell the story differently <laughs> tell it again <laughs> well okay well here's why because what the times gives you is what happened yeah and what the t- post gives you is a take and it's interested in purience. It's interested in uh, and peeing on a lot of people in, in many yeah, cases. It, you know, and I, I don't. We don't. Our magazine does not have the politics of the New York Post. We are not doing the same thing the New York Post is doing. But I appreciate it. I appreciate the tabloid perspective because it's got one. It's got. It's alive. You know. And what we're trying to do with the magazine is have a sense of life and a personality and and you should be able to like us sometimes and not like us other times and if we're appealing to everyone we're doing the wrong thing okay what about dinner parties don't you get an awful lot of stuff from a a, a big mouth who's talking at a dinner party and you got big ears listening yeah definitely i my favorite thing about the tuesday ideas meeting that i was talking about earlier is it's gotten you've had enough time to digest the weekend dinner parties and, you know, and the, your experiences in the weekend where you're hanging out with friends and you're not just with coworkers and you're hearing how your how how life is being talked about. And then you can sort of sit on that for a couple of days and see, oh, there's an idea in that. It's the way people are talking about this change in, you know, schools policy that is interesting. It's not that it's not that we need to go dead at the policy. We need to go at how the policy is being felt. How did the pandemic affect you? Me personally? No. Why do I care uh, about you personally? <laughs> about the magazine? <laughs> well, the 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 magazine thrived. I have to say, the magazine itself. I'm really proud of the work that we published. It was um, incredibly hard for all the obvious reasons. We've never printed a pre- made a print magazine remotely before. That that was just not possible. And then suddenly it was. And then we could do it again, and then maybe we do this for a few more issues, and now we're still doing it remotely. Like, that's a crazy thing. And it's not just technically difficult. It's that all of the, all of the, the thing about being in person next to each other, when that disappears and you're on Zoom grids, it's just a lot more work and energy um, required to create that sort of fizziness that makes the whole thing special. So that's been really difficult. Obviously, everyone's had a really just struggled inter like themselves personally and brought that to work in a way that's really difficult to manage through. But, but I think that the, the product that we made has actually been like, you know, it's, it's like, it's just got a ton of, um, vitality during this period. We've got so much vitality that we're turning into Chicago. We're killing everybody else. (laughs) So when do you think we will come back? New York. Oh, I think the first thing to say is that New York is back already. Where? Where is it back? Let's How go. Is it back? Let's go out to dinner tonight. I'll show you. I are think, you buying? Are you buying? Sure. And then you have my interest. <laughs> no. How is it coming back? I people mean, are still scared. Yes, people are scared, but 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 fear is an ingredient in urban life always. That 
that is just part of the uh, that's something that maybe we forgot over a period of you know the Bloombergian version of the city was sort of astonishingly um, placid. But like the city can be a very strong, robust, exciting place and still be a place where there is some crime. I'm not excusing it that I'm just saying that that is like a reality that we're probably going back into. And there, you know, and one thing that that I think is really interesting is if you track the kind of the return of restaurants. Like so so to work in a restaurant, to be a waiter in New York City is such a uh, iconic and still incredibly useful opportunity to be living anywhere else in the world and come here with your dream and start by being a waiter, right? And, and we lost that whole thing for about 15 months. And that was incredibly disruptive. And, and the city lost a lot of people who probably went back to where they came from. And what the city is doing right now as we speak is staffing up. And it's staffing up at that, at that like entry level, entry to New York City level um, that is restocking a like uh, a whole generation of New Yorkers that will live here for decades and change the city permanently. And we are the beginning of seeing that new class of New Yorkers. It's See, really the exciting. trouble with you is you're so boring. Talking to you, you're so boring. You never have anything to say. I'm really but, optimistic. <laughs> that is, and that's a problem. Get off it. me. It's enough with you already. I <laughs> was talking to David Haskell, the editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, and I love you madly. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.